Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So... Turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hello, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment. Welcome to what is sure to be a fantastic episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. So I'm very excited to welcome back to the show today and a fantastic guest. We had to have him back for another episode for a part two. It is Simon Napier Bell. He is back for what is sure to be a fantastic, pun intended, conversation about the life and legacy of one of his star clients, the late, great George Michael. Simon managed Wham! for basically their entire heyday from when he discovered them through their epic, historic performance of Young Guns. Go for it. On Top of the Pops in 1982. Look that up on YouTube if you haven't seen it. It is must-see TV. And speaking of must-see TV, you can catch Simon in the great new Netflix documentary, Wham! And he also directed another must-see documentary of his own, The Real George Michael, which is available to stream now. So welcome back to the show. Without any further ado, Simon Napier-Bell. Thank you, Lindsay. So Simon, last time I had you on the podcast... We talked, obviously, a lot about Wham's early days when you first took them on as a client, and we talked about the decision that George Michael made in 1982 to not publicly come out as gay, and the decision obviously had ramifications for the rest of his life and probably for his career, too. So I wonder if you've ever thought of this. I certainly have while watching all of these documentaries and stuff. Do you think that if... George had made a different decision back in 1982 and had been like, okay, I'm going to come out. I'm going to come out to the world would have hurt Wham's career because, you know, it was, in my opinion, it was a time when there were a lot of artists that even if they weren't saying they were gay, like Bronski beat or Frankie goes to Hollywood. It was a time when certainly a lot of artists that were playing with sexuality, like board George were being accepted as huge pop stars. Do you think it would have hurt Wham if he had been, gay either from the beginning or very early on out you know openly gay to the public okay very complex question firstly in america yes because apart from anything else record companies would have thought it would and therefore they would withdraw the support and they wouldn't have got promoted so that's simple in america it would have killed their career in the uk in the uk probably not in the terms of acceptance of being gay but you have to remember just at that time and towards the end of the 80s uh, there was aids and AIDS was being billed as a disease which killed you. And if you got, if you were gay, you would get it. Not maybe, you would get it and you would die. And if you went somewhere, you were near somebody who had AIDS, you might catch it. And so, you know, the whole promotion of music is, is that you were a fan. You want to see that person. You want to get near them. You want to touch them, pull their hair, touch their jacket. And here's the media telling you, if you do that and they're gay, you might die. This is not a very tempting thing. <laughs> You're not going to tempt somebody out of the closet with that going on. 
And um, so even the people who were gay, who projected gay imagery, like Boy George or Bronsky Beat, they didn't say they were gay. They, I mean, George said things like, you know, I, I prefer a cup of tea to sex. Well, um, Bronsky Beat definitely did, but it's interesting that, you know, related to this, I've interviewed Bernard Rose, who was the guy that directed both the Small Town Boy video for Bronsky Beat and um, the R-rated version of Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And he has voiced a lot of the things that you said to me that like things um, acceptance of gay people and gay artists was on a roll. And then AIDS came along and just completely. Right at the beginning, right at the beginning, it wouldn't have mattered. It was AIDS really blew up about 87, but just still wham time. And um, Bronsky beach, even the Bronsky beach, he, he started with the first record without saying I'm gay. Here's my recording. He had to hit and then said, I'm gay. And so it's, it's, it's still right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think it makes it look. Teenage fans, forget what I said about touching when you're going to get AIDS, because this was just before that. Girls know that um, they both lust after or long for uh, to be in love with that wonderful pop star. And they also know they can't get it. They're totally realistic. Teenage girls know know they're fooling themselves. You know, <laughs> oh, I've got the pictures on the wall. They would love to be with that person. At the same time, they know they can't get it. And so if they're gay, it doesn't make any difference. They're not going to get it anyway. It's just one more thing they're not going to get. And one <laughs> more thing they like to persuade themselves is if they did get it, they'd persuade them not to be gay. I don't mm-hmm. think it makes the slightest bit of difference. In other countries, you know, France, for instance, there had been Alan Delon, probably the greatest heartthrob actor that had ever been in France, was openly bisexual. It didn't turn off any fans at all. They just thought, wow, that's going to make him even more difficult to get. Now I want him even more. <laughs> but it, it was a different time. And I do think a lot of people forget or people listening to this who might be too young to remember. They don't remember what AIDS, AIDS was considered a death sentence then. And it was like, you know, I mean, it, it, we, I, uh, Lindsay, I was, I was on a plane with George one day from Los Angeles to San Francisco. It was the first tour they did in America playing small theaters with a thousand seater. And we were flying up to LA and I was reading in the LA times sitting in at nine o'clock in the morning flight. And there was a feature feature on the front of the New York times, uh, the LA times, about AIDS, and it said scientists have decided, pretty much decided 100% that anyone who's had promiscuous, any gay person who's had promiscuous sex, and that's not with a partner, uh, had sex in the last year, will get AIDS and die. That's what it said. That's the entire gay gay population of America. It was very pessimistic. And um, I almost fainted. I remember dropping the paper and sitting back my eyes shut, and George said, what's wrong? And I said, read this. Now, remember, we never talked about being gay. It was always done in a bleak way. But, you know, I knew he was and he knew I knew. So Mm -hmm. I handed him the paper and he went white and he didn't speak for three days. And uh, nobody knew why. And the crew said to me, what's wrong with George? He hasn't spoken since we got to San Francisco. So it was very much in his mind, not just in Everett, like it was for every other gay person, worried, my God, when did I last have sex? Have I done it? You know, I'm going to get, have I got it? Am I going to get it? But he was there thinking his whole life, his whole career, which he was planning out, was this going to interrupt his plans? So it was devastating for him to read that. It's crazy. One of the other things that I actually learned from your documentary, The Royal George Michael, that just broke my heart is I did not realize I mean, this is going a little ahead of the 80s, but in at the 1992, I believe it was the Freddie Mercury tribute concert where he very famously kind of owned the, the whole event with somebody you love. I was not aware that he, you know, as it's in the documentary of yours, you know, his partner Anselmo at the time, love of his life, was HIV positive. It was something they kind of recently 
uh, had discovered and, you know, was in this bleak backdrop of there not really being any hope that there would be a cure or whatever. It was like I no, said. No, I mean, it, when he made that, did the incredible performance in that beautiful pink jacket, but it was the most incredible performance of somebody to love, which out-fretted Freddie. I mean, it was just one of the best performances of anything I've ever seen. Um, he had heard that Anselmo, his first real love, his absolute passion, his you know, first time he could say, I'm in, I'm in love to such a degree that he'd come out to everybody except the media. And it was had Anselmo traveling with him with the crew and the musicians and everybody. Um, he just heard that Anselmo had HIV and actually had AIDS. Mm. And there was no cure. That meant Anselmo was going to die. And he was in the audience. So George was singing that song to Anselmo in the audience. Um, not easy. Yeah. And, you know, now that I know that, I've gone back and watched that performance. And I mean, what a friggin' star performance to know that that was fueling it. It's pretty, pretty intense. Well, let's, I want to switch gears back to the 80s and maybe a, a equally historic performance. I want to talk about when Wham went to China because I believe that was uh, your doing and it was historic. It was the first Western pop act, I believe, to ever play a concert in China, if I'm correct. Can you tell me about all that, your memories of that? Yeah, well, the very first meeting, uh, apart from that meeting in my flat I talked about when these two guys came in and George and Andrew turned out not to be the identical twins they look like on TV, uh, we went to dinner with them and said, right, let's discuss what we're going to do. And George said, we want, to be num we want to be the number one group in a year, and that's all you've got. And we said, no, I just laughed, that's impossible. <laughs> number one group has to be number one group in America because it's 60% of the world market. You haven't even had a record release there yet. Uh, let's sit down and talk about reality. And he said, nope, nope, you've got a year. So uh, wow. we went on to it. And after a while, uh, it didn't progress. I think my partner, Jazz Summers, said, you maybe we could make you the first Western rock group, pop group ever to play in China. And that would get on the news all over the world. And that would rush things a bit. And George said, yeah, I like that. Go and do that. And so uh, one week later, I found myself in China sitting in, um, in a hotel room alone <laughs> in this big, bleak country, thinking who in the whole of China could invite the first pop group ever to play in China? You know, you know the, the world saw, of, everyone knows that Youth culture is very subversive. There's nothing more likely to undermine governments than youth culture. And the Chinese knew that better than anybody. They didn't even want their own youth culture to flourish, let alone a Western youth culture. So no one was going to say, oh, how lovely. But, so I was sitting in this hotel room in Beijing thinking, what have I got into? Who could actually say yes? And of course, the answer was the president, Deng Xiaoping, probably the second or third most powerful person in the entire world. How was I going to get from this hotel room to him and persuade him? Yeah, that's, and that's what I spent the next 18 months doing and did. How did you do that? Um, slowly, very, very slowly. <laughs> 18 months, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, I got a book uh, from my embassy, which gave me the list of all the ministries and the names of the ministers. And I sat there in that hotel room and started calling at the top of the list and um, went through. And every time I got through to a minister, ministry, I found, tried to find somebody who spoke English. Sometimes it was just a cleaning lady or sometimes it was someone high up who knew and I said, could you tell them Simon Lepiebel's come from London and would like to take the minister to lunch? And I figured, you know, that would sound quite important to them, a foreigner, posh name, and uh, a good lunch. Um, and after I got through a tenth of the way through the book, I gave up. It was two days. And I couldn't do it anymore. I was too miserable. So I flew home and told everybody it's going very well. And I went <laughs> back a month, a month later. And amazingly, when I checked in the hotel, the same hotel, 
um, they said, you've got a message. And the message was from the minister of, of um, I can't remember what he was the minister of, <laughs> the minister of home resources or something like that. <laughs> and um, yes, I'd like to come to lunch with you. So I called back and fixed the lunch with him. And he turned up uh, in a Chairman Mao suit, you know, those, those sort of blue boiler suits with bicycle pips. He'd come on his bicycle. A minister in most countries would arrive in a chauffeur Mercedes, but no, on his bicycle. And he walked in the lobby and I introduced myself. And he said, very nice to meet you. Very nice to talk about buying coal from Jiangxi. He muddled me up with somebody else. But I had my first minister. <laughs> and from then on, I went back every month and bought lunch for him. And each month he invited more ministers because I did good lunches. I paid for good lunches. And they didn't get good lunches. And they didn't have nice big expense accounts. And bit by bit by bit, I got more and more people to come and have lunch with him. And each week um, or each time I went a little further in talking about the benefits of youth culture. And my argument was, if if you invite WAM or any, any group like that to come to China and the world sees that you're open to having foreign youth culture come in, um, they'll think you've really opened up. Everyone knows how subversive it can be. And that means you're confident, you're happy, you're opening up. And if you show that you're opening up, you'll get foreign investment. You'll get huge foreign investment coming in. And you don't have to let anyone in China know that this group's come here. It's not, it's not about business. We don't care about that. All we care about is there are foreign TV crews to broadcast it to the rest of the world. And that will get your foreign investment. And you can keep it from your own people. We don't care. And that was the deal. And that's what they did. So when I went to China, nobody in China knew they were there, but the whole of the rest of the world knew it. And in the next 10 years, billions and billions and billions of dollars flowed in and modern Beijing was built really from that money. Wow, that's amazing. That is real history. Forgive me if this is a naive question to ask. Was it considered in the Western world controversial at all that Wham did this concert? No, I mean, you know, they, they were surprised because nobody else had done it. And why Wham? And when, when I got back to London and I announced it, all the press said, why wham? Why wham? Why not a nice left-wing group with, you know, with Billy Bragg, someone who, who's very sort of anti-capitalist? You know, that's what the communists would like. I said, no, no, you don't understand. What the government wants is they want a group who, who are not political, who, are, who don't upset the status quo, who just are happy to get up the stage and play. They don't want someone coming here and, and um, getting into politics. So to them, wham were the sort of, you know, the, the nice kids who did as they were meant to do by their government. Mm-hmm. Um, and but of course the problem we had is we told the foreign press they, they told the British press uh, they said why and I said because Wham are huge in China and everybody loves them and knows their records and of course it was a complete lie no one ever heard of Wham and so we had the problem that there's dozens of foreign journalists were going to come to the gig and some they're going to realise straight away nobody knew nobody knew the songs at all and we're sitting in wide eyed and amazement and <laughs> and so. Um, I flew back to China and I found a Chinese Mandarin language singer and we re- we recorded all Wham songs in Mandarin and made a cassette, which was the Chinese singer singing on one side and Wham singing on the other side. And we gave the cassette away with every ticket which was sold so that everyone who came to the concert would have heard the songs and heard them in Chinese and hopefully would sing along with one or two. That sort of worked. You're a genius. You're a marketing genius. This is why you do what you do. This is why you're you've managed all these. That's brilliant that you did that. I never knew that story. Holy cow. 
Oh, we actually, 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 we gave two cassettes with each ticket because the tickets were rather expensive. We, we didn't set the price. The government did. And we didn't get the money. The government sold the tickets and made the money. We even paid the, the people who sold the tickets. Um, but we gave two cassettes with each ticket because I figured they'd keep one. They could sell the other one and get the money back for the ticket. And so wow. a, a, a week before Wham turned up, I saw in the local market these cassettes were changing hands in the market. So it was, it was a good marketing ploy, and it, it did set things off. Amazing. Well, the other big, huge historic concert that I make want to make sure we cover while I'm talking uh, is the Wembley show, the final show, 1986, summer of 86. Uh, you know, as I've mentioned before, this band, I can't think of many other bands that went out as on top as Wham did. Maybe the Beatles, maybe the police, uh, you know, just absolutely at the peak, could have kept it going. Um, and they did it with a big spectacular, unlike the police or the Beatles, they did it with a big spectacular, like this is it concert. And unlike all these other bands like Kiss or whoever else that say they're retiring or breaking up and then, if you know, it's a lie and, you know, they meant it. So I'd love to get your memories of what I imagine was a pretty epic, but also very bittersweet night. But it's bittersweet because, you know, we we worked hard to create Wham and make them happen. And at that moment, there were about offers come in for about 180 dates around the world, you know, which would have made two or three million pounds each. So that'd be 500 million, half a billion dollars gross. Wham would probably have got half of that. Management's get their commission. That was sort of the reward for having done the work. And Andrew wanted to do that. He wanted to take the tour around the world. And mm. George is adamant. He said, no, we just do one concert. Ah, George had decided the moment it come, he didn't want to go on with Wham. He found the pressure too big to go around the world. He sort of knew if he was persuaded, all right, we'll go around the world with the tour. Towards the end of the tour, the entire music industry would be saying, oh, you ought to go on for another year. This is so big. Look at Elton's final <laughs> tour. It started off three months, it's gone on for three years. I mean, yeah. it's it's very difficult. So George just, he always did. George was somebody who stuck by what he said. So he, that was it. It was extraordinary. I was I was standing uh, in the VIP box right in front of Prince Charles and Diana, now King Charles. Mm. Um, and Diana was trying to persuade Charles to dance. He's not a very good dancer. He was very uncomfortable. I couldn't help but keep looking around over my shoulder at this poor man trying to pretend he was dancing <laughs> and enjoying it all. But Diana was having a great time. Um, but it was an incredible show, absolutely amazing show. And it's what last show should be. This is the last show, incredible show, and it really is finished, gone. And George stuck to it, and it was, in terms of his overall career, it was the right thing to do, to move on and not go back on it. Did you, as the manager, and seeing the potential for, as you mentioned, more tour dates, more earnings, the, 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 uh, you know, the pay for all the work you'd put in, did you at any point try to... Talk George out of hanging up and be like, come on, what are you, are you crazy? You know, you guys uh, just had all these hits. How can you hang it up so soon? No, I mean, if you knew George, you know, you know, <laughs> when he makes his mind up, he makes his mind up. And, and a manager's job is certainly to advise and persuade to some degree, but it's also to facilitate. You know, it's like you go to your divorce lawyer. So we're going to get divorced. And the lawyer says, you sure? You know, George is a really nice guy. And, you know, would you like to stay a bit longer together and try again? And there's the kids. But once your lawyer's decided you really mean it, he's going to help you do it. And that's what a manager is, too. When Wham split up and, and George went on to be the huge solo sensation that he was, 
that was the end of your time managing him, right? He kind of, is that because he just wanted a total clean slate or why did you stop being his manager? No, he told me he didn't, when he went solo, he didn't want Jazz, my partner, uh, to continue to be a co-manager. And I said, well, you can't tell me that. That's how I work. I work with him. It was, I said, it's just like if I said to you, you know, um, you've got to leave Andrew. It's like if I said, you've got to go solo. You've got to throw Andrew out. You just can't do it. You can't dictate that to me. The funny thing is, I didn't, once it was over, I didn't want to go working with Jazz, not because we fell out, because I didn't, at that stage, didn't want to go being a manager. I thought, if that finishes, I'll go off and do something else for a while, write books, Mm -hmm. which is what I did. Mm -hmm. Um, But I said to George, you can't tell me that. That's not something you can do. And he said, yeah, I quite agree. If you told me I couldn't be with Andrew, I'd tell you to you know, go away. <laughs> and, uh, and so we weren't, it wasn't, it was quite amicable. You know, he said, I've, I don't want jazz. And I said, in that case, you won't get me. And he said, okay. What was and the pr- we, problem with jazz? I have to ask. I don't know. They'd had a row. They had a fight. I really, I never found out. I really never found out. And, uh, but you know, I mean, we went and had dinner after that. And then uh, um, his best friend, David Austin, wanted to be a pop star, and George said he'll he'll produce him, and I was managing him. So we, we went on working together. Even after, after I stopped managing Wham, effectively, okay. I went on working with George for a while as producer of his friend David Austin. Um, it was misunderstood in the press, but it was a difficult situation. George knew he didn't want jazz and wouldn't work with him, and I knew that an artist can't say that to you. Also... I wouldn't have known how to tell Jazz. How do you go to your partner who's yeah. done nothing but good? And, you know, he was certainly 50% of making Wham! successful, just as much as me. How do you go to him and say, oh, I'm going to manage George without you afterwards? You, you just can't do that. How did it feel, though, to, I mean, as big as Wham! were, um, you know, it could be argued that George Michael was even bigger as a solo artist and certainly more critically successful, but also, you know, Grammys and, you know, one of the biggest artists of all, of all time, really. Did that how that sit with you to sort of now be on the sidelines watching him go oh, on? I, I, I'm a sideline person. I, I I've got outsider built into it. I like um I'm always quite happy when I stop managing artists. However big they are and however successful it is, I like to go off on my own and sit and think and uh, be free. Uh so I it's both. And then after a while I get bored and I want to come back and do it. So I love managing artists, but I like there to be a time limit. I I've got friends who are managers that have managed the same artists for 20 years. I, I wouldn't know how to do that. I like projects, whereas they get into sort of marriages. Well, I'm very curious as, you know, someone who's managed so many people, uh, you know, obviously you were not with him during, it's in your documentary, The Real George Michael, but all of the stuff that came in the 90s, the Sony battle, the fact that he, you know, didn't want to be in his video, you know, just didn't put out a record for for six years, I think, uh, in the 90s. From the sidelines watching it, what were you thinking? Were you thinking like, oh, if I was still involved, it would be a different or I'd handle this this way? You know, you must have had thoughts. Yeah, but the point is, I wouldn't have let him do faith. I mean, I knew that he was gay and he was having a problem with it. And the whole point of breaking up Wham! was to say, right, now I'm going to be myself. And instead of which, he got sidetracked. He was tempted by fame. He wanted to be as big as Madonna or Michael Jackson. And so the faith image was even more heterosexual than the Wham image, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so he put himself in this terrible predicament of leaving Wham so he could be himself and then making himself even more false. And he realized it. I mean, he knew. He knew that he'd done something wrong in personal terms. You know, it, it, He wasn't enjoying it. At the wow. same time, at the end of two years of faith, he'd had five number ones. 
Uh, he'd made himself $50 million. He wouldn't have to work again. He could now do what he wanted the rest of his life. Um, so he'd achieved what he meant to achieve. And it did sell more than Madonna that year. I mean, it was the biggest selling album. So he'd achieved what he set out to achieve, but now he wanted to try to get himself back, rescue himself from the music industry. That was very difficult. And he never really managed it either. No, he didn't. It's interesting you talk about how the faith image was even more like, you know, masculine. What was the very first solo single we put out after Wham broke up? I Want Your Sex, which had a woman who I believe was his girlfriend, or at least in the press they were saying he, that she was his girlfriend. In the gay world, we call it your beard. <laughs> well, they used to his, beard, his beard was in the video. Father figure, of course, was also quite, quite macho and had a model in it playing as a female model. You asked, did I think I would have done it differently? Faith wouldn't have happened. But I mean, he's quite right you know, to, to do what he wanted to do. I wouldn't have been the right manager for that because I would have continually said to him, you're miserable, this is stupid. You know, when you're a major star, you, you end up in a hotel room alone 20 hours a day. You're limoed to an airport. You sat in a first-class seat with minders all around you, making sure nobody gets to you. You go on stage two hours. You love that. The adrenaline flows. The audience loves you. Then you're back alone. He did a 19 months of that nonstop, 175 dates around the world. No one in the room with him, no Andrew to tell jokes and have fun with. Look, the major punishment, other than putting someone to death, that you can give anyone is solitary confinement. You know, you're imprisoned in solitary confinement. That's what these pop stars volunteer to do. So it's the same, same, same punishment you give your worst criminals. And uh, that's where a pop star ends up for 18 months when they're on tour alone. By the end of it, he was pretty unhappy, which I knew he would be. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned, you know, not having Andrew around and certainly something that has crossed my mind from watching the other documentary, the Wham! documentary that is on Netflix that Chris Smith did, which is just about Wham! You know, Andrew comes across very, he's like the hero of that movie because it kind of clears up a lot of misconceptions about him and their friendship is the core of that story. And it has crossed everyone's minds that even if George, for creative reasons, had to leave Wham behind, had to leave Andrew behind, that if he'd had his best friend in his corner, a, a buddy with him, when he was navigating all the stuff we just talked about, maybe things would have been different. He kind of needed that buddy system, I think. He, he did. He did. But, you know, Andrew is extremely grounded, sensible person. And long before the tour was halfway through, Andrew would have said, why don't we just quit? <laughs> so it wouldn't have happened. You know, because Andrew would say, look, we've made enough money. This is a nightmare. And do we have to go on doing this? And, you know, um, Andrew, even when Wham was going on, Andrew tried to live a very normal life. And he, you know, he, he, he wasn't intimidated by people mobbing him. He still wanted to go out and be normal. That's what he did. Immediately Wham broke up. Uh, he lives. In, he goes down to his local supermarket or shopping center and walks around. He's just not prepared to to be intimidated by fame, and he wasn't even then. I don't think, it, you know, having Andrew around in that sense would have made it easier for George, or would have been better. But it also would have not. It wouldn't have happened. It just couldn't have been done. Yeah, I guess I just. It's just a shame. I feel like he didn't have the support system he had when it was two against the world. Not one against. Well, well, I agree, and that, that's why you asked me about management. You see, I, I'm, I would get concerned, and I would try and put the support system in place, and then that would begin to dis. The whole thing would begin to disintegrate. You know? That's the problem. You, you sort of have to be what what you have to be. Rock stars are meant to be like that, and they have to be like that. If you 
dilute that and they become too accessible and too touchable. They cease to be rock stars. So we are we're creating we're sort of creating monsters out of nice teenagers, but we're also creating a monstrous lifestyle for them. It's an anomaly. We have to deal with it all the time. When was the last time you and George spoke before he passed in 2016? I can't believe it's been seven years already. Yeah, it's probably three or four years before then. It would be an industry event. I mean, that's tend to be once you stop working with somebody, it tends to be when you meet. You don't see each other for a year or two and you go to some awards event. And they're, oh, there's George. You have a big hug and how are you and everything going well. Um, the usual sort of meaningless industry conversation, which can be nice. I mean, it can be word wordwise, it's meaningless, but it's it's a nice moment. Um, but we wouldn't have talked about anything very much other than, you know, nice to see you, how's things going? And then even if they're going terribly, you say, Great, don't you? So I mean, it's dark to talk about this and it's well beyond the 80s, but it's definitely, you know, it's how your documentary ends. The last few years of his life were were dark and and seemingly not very happy ones. You know, he was dealing with health problems, substance abuse problems, the career problems, all everything. Um, I mean, you must have that must have been hard, even if you were witnessing it from afar. That must have been very hard for you to witness. Well, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it's hard. Uh, it's inevitable. I mean, a lot of people. I mean, nearly all the people working with him who had worked with him could all see it happening. But George is a very was a very stubborn person. I mean, there were one or two people tried to help Elton and uh, one of the Spice Girls, Jerry Halliwell. But George, I didn't put it all in the documentary. We got a lot of stuff which didn't go in because we just had forty hours of people talking. But um, a lot, a lot of people. One journalist said, "You know, George opened up when I was talking to him and said, I don't care. I know what I'm doing. You know, I, I, I'm I'm happy taking too many drugs and wrecking myself. That's what I like doing." And um, he got annoyed with the people who tried to help him. You know? he, he was very clever at coming out of himself, looking, you know, like the, looking at himself as if he wasn't him, you know, looking from an outside point of view at himself. And he said, yeah, that, that's what George likes doing. I, I don't, I'm not going to stop him. Wow. Well, to end things on, obviously, a happier note, you know, George is one of the few people from the 80s or any decade that really made a phenomenally successful transition from being in a band to being a solo artist um you know not everyone can you know there's people like obviously michael jackson's a big one more recently beyonce uh gwen stefani's done it sting i mentioned the police earlier sting did it of course all the beatles did it but it's it's the it's the exception a lot of people who are in huge bands they go solo and it just they they cannot capture lightning in a bottle on their own so i guess my question to you is what was it about george that made it that he was so pretty seamlessly able to transition from being this teen idol to being this rock and roll hall of fame inducted solo artist. Well, one thing is he was the musical talent behind it. So he really did know how to write songs and create them. He never lost that. He was a brilliant songwriter, had a magical voice. I mean, no one says anything but that. Um, and Andrew had trained him in stagecraft. And Andrew trained him without knowing he was training him. Andrew has a natural sort of stagecraft. He just walks out of the house and he's like he's on stage. And George copied that and learned from it. Um, so he had this wonderful self-confidence he could put on an act, even if he didn't have it innately in himself, and an innate musical talent. And, you know, he when you talk about some bands, people leave and don't happen, there's usually only one person in a band who's really 
in that George-like state, a real artist, a real creator. And they usually do happen, and the other ones in the band don't. But um, I think from, from the time Wham started, George, you could see George blossoming, and it was all coming from, what you could see was all coming from Andrew. That's the stagecraft and the outer confidence. And the blossoming, blossoming music-wise, about the same, yeah, about the same pace at the same time. So he had, it was pretty inevitable he was going to happen. You know, he came out of Wham at the peak of his musical writing talent and at the peak of his performance talent. It'd be difficult to see him not happening in that moment. What are you looking forward to as we look ahead to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony coming up this November, which I'm very excited about? Who would you like to see, besides Andrew, of course, I feel Andrew needs to be involved, but who would you like to see, you know, induct him obviously because george isn't with us he won't perform there so i assume they'll have someone perform his music is there someone a more modern artist you'd like to see perform a medley of george michael and wham hits i would like to see adam lambert do it i think sam smith would also be a good choice that's me i think it should be elton elton that actually makes a lot of sense because in um elton was one of kind of maybe the first people to sort of go on the record and say george michael I don't think anyone who is involved with him or knew him well is big enough to do it apart from Elton. It should be Elton. And I sort of think you'll go and do it too. I can't wait. I hope you're right. Do you have intel or you just, you just point this out to the universe? Instinct rather than insight. Got it. I got it. Well, I, I've really enjoyed, I mean, I've gotten so much insight from you. I mean, I thought I knew a lot about George Michael, but now I really feel like you know, getting to hear your stories has been amazing. I want to thank you for your time. What would be your, as a final thing, what is your fondest memory? One last story. What is your fondest memory of your time with George and Wham that we haven't already covered? Sort of arguments. I mean, he was a great person to talk to. You know, I, I, I like I like a good discussion, and so did George. And he's, you know, he was very difficult to persuade on any point. George, once he's made his mind up on something, absolutely thought he was right. And there was one time I was talking to him and I didn't agree with him. And he said, if you don't agree with me when I'm talking, it's because you're not listening. <laughs> and I thought it was wonderful. It's some George up, but it was very funny. Well, I like a good discussion. I definitely like listening. And I hope everybody has enjoyed listening to this fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. A special thanks to my guest today, Simon Napier-Bell, for this fascinating conversation. Your documentary, The Real George Michael, is now available to stream on Amazon, Tubi, Roku, Peacock, and pretty much any platform where, where you get your documentaries, your rockumentaries. I highly recommend it. It is must-see viewing for anyone who is a George Michael fan. So everybody go check that out. And remember to give Tolly 80s a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform also. And I will catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. 